You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 89 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, Honestly, I am deeply, deeply irritated today. Why? Because I think every fly in the history of the world has hatched (laughs) in the last two days and when I walk, it's like I don't even want to walk outside. It's like every time I walk outside I'm bombarded Oh, and no. I started to think it maybe it was me, which, <laughs> you know, would be problematic. Yes. But apparently it's happening to everyone. And it's even happening in Melbourne. So there's, we can't even move to get away wow. from them because I was speaking to Amy Suda-Clark on Twitter this morning and she was telling me that, yep, Melbourne is also inundated with flies. So yeah. I don't know. How Are you having a fly crisis up your way? Um, not really, but what? I don't go out much. <laughs> So you wouldn't actually know is what you're saying. No, but um, I do obviously venture outdoors from time to time. <laughs> I, I, have, I have been known to take fresh air on yes. occasion. Yes. And I have fly screens. Well, I have them too and that's why I'm now staying inside. But Procrasty Pup and I went for a walk this morning and it wasn't pretty, I'm telling oh, you. Oh, yeah. He goes all right because he's got like a massive feather duster sort of tail that he just, you know, flicks oh, yes. around. But I looked like I was doing some kind of crazy interpretive dance. Like <laughs> it was really, people were laughing. I did go kayaking on the weekend but there weren't very many flies around there because maybe they don't fly out into the middle of the water so much. Maybe. They can't get off far off land. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, because they feel safe. (laughs) Their little wings are too small. (laughs) That's right. Fair enough. But don't you think think it's while we're on the subject of flies though. Okay. Don't you think it's weird when people live in houses with no fly screens? Well, I think it's not weird. I think it's probably unfortunate more than anything else. I I used to, when I rented back in my, you know, heady days of of (laughs) being poor and studenty and living in share houses and all that stuff, which I did for like – about four decades, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lots of houses we lived in had no screens, and it was just you know because if, if it's not the flies all over everything during the day, it's the mosquitoes. Yeah, mozzies. At night, you had to have your own you know personal move from house to house mosquito net. It was terrible. Did you have a mosquito net? Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yes, and I'm telling you, best invention ever if you mm. don't have a fly screen. Yeah, for sure. Although I they collect although- dust. Yeah, I never had a mosquito net. I always had a fan, like an attempt to blow the mosquitoes away. Oh, yeah, and I had that too. Mm, I was okay. trying all possible, <laughs> all possible <laughs> offensive ma- measures were taken, let me tell you. But, well, apart yeah, from and, flies. Yeah, really, we've gone off track. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart from flies. You. What's been happening in your world in writing, in, in your, you know, in your job? <laughs> oh, my job. Oh, that's yeah. right, yes. Um. I'm just trying to think if I have any exciting announcements or developments this week, and I don't think I do. It's pretty much just, you know, head down because I have exactly 
not very long before my children are on school holidays. Yes. And right. as any writing, freelancing, at home mother will know, that's like it's like a deadline for it's the biggest deadline in the world. Because then you've got six weeks of having to manage them. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Mm. I don't envy you. No, because they're not quiet, you know. They're just <laughs> really noisy. Eight year old boys are the noisiest creatures in the world, I've decided. I bet. Hmm. It's a shame they don't scare the flies away. And you, are you doing anything (laughs) exciting with your writing? What have I been doing? I packed off my final uh, submission for, um, you know, magazine articles for this year. Yeah. And I'm going to have a week off before I chat to the editor again to, you know, just see what's coming up in January, February, that sort of thing. But um, I had a busy period with that over the last sort of two months. So quite happy to take a week off. And not have Excellent. something due. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. And I've been kayaking. Of course. Yes. I, I didn't I, I wasn't gonna bring that up. I didn't realise you were a kayaker. Last time we spoke you were a boxer. <laughs> or actually you were a fight to the death cage fighting <laughs> machine, I believe. I, I'm and still now you are a kayaker. <laughs> we got some kayaks, but the fun thing about being on a kayak, I've decided, is that you go, you know, paddling about on the water and we've got these kayaks that you don't have, if you're lazy like me, you don't have to paddle. You can, st- you know, stick your paddle onto the side and then you can pedal. So you can just pedal. pedal. Oh, it's please stop. so cool. You've got kayaks that with <laughs> pedals in them. Yeah, how cool is that? So what I thought is I'll just <laughs> pedal away and I've worked out a way. There's a place that you can put your iPhone to, so oh. that it's not wet. And I'm going to pedal away and then I'm going to have my iPhone on me and I'm going to dictate, dictate my articles and blog posts. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> how this goes for you because I just have this vision of you out there and then suddenly you'll look up and you'll realise you've drifted (laughs) somewhere off the east coast of Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. Oh, I see land. And there'll be a helicopter rescue. (laughs) Excellent. This is getting good. All right, come on, tell me something exciting. What have you got from the world of writing and blogging this week for me? Okay. I thought this was an interesting link and it's about the loss of a character can be as real as the loss of a live person. Now, I thought this was pretty interesting. You write characters and you get to know them and you get to understand their innermost thoughts and desires. It's quite an intimate relationship. But let's face it, they're fictional. Oh, no, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) No, they're not, Valerie. They're real and they live in my head. Yes, but anyway. So I was wondering whether you related to this. Okay. So you grieve. Do you grieve when you, you know, that when you lose a character? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I do. Really grieve? Really grieve? No, I do. You know, I have to say that when I wrote the end, because I more grieve the loss of the entire, it's not so much, um, the death of a character. There is there is a character that dies uh, in the Mapmaker Chronicles, and that was that was a sad moment. Mm. Um, but the really the very difficult part for me actually came when I'd finished the series, writing the end on the series, and having to kind of come to terms with the fact that 
that that was over, you know, that that mm. world was finished for the time. Well, you know, like, you know, I keep thinking for the time being, I'm, I'm sincerely hoping there will be more mm. Map Maker books. But that particular story was done and I was saying goodbye to people who, mm. you know, I, I'm not joking, they do feel very real to me. And they have been living in my head for several years now, the entire mm. cast, doing their thing, talking to me, talking to each other, you know, et cetera, which makes me slightly mad. But what anyway. did they say to you? Well, we talk, we talk, you know, we talk about what's going to happen. Like you, you've got, constantly got plot points, you know, in your head and what's going to happen next and how's this going to work. And, and so you're kind of watching it play out, um, particularly when you get to a sticky a sticky situation and it's very, very difficult to, because of the way I write, you know, because of, we've discussed my, um, my lack of a plan. Mm. And so I do find myself in situations where the characters are, are in a particular spot in the story and I've had to stop writing because I don't know how I'm going to get them out of this particular situation, mm. you know, in a logical fashion. Sure. So, so then we go for a walk and we have a bit of a talk about it. And you we and have the a, characters? Well, yeah, because I'd, I'd run them through different scenarios. Like they're mm. constantly like running through different scenarios in my head of would this work? No, that's not going to work. What's the motivation for this? Is this going to work? No, that's not going to work. And as you sort of like let all that unravel and unspool and they're sort of doing their thing, um, gradually that's why, it's, you know, that's why I liken it to active meditation. That's why I walk so much. Um, gradually it's sort of like it starts to make sense and you will have that moment where it just goes, oh, that's it. That's what happens mm. and the characters are cheering and you're cheering and then you go back to your desk and you write it down. So um, this, but I just like, you know, just as a, as a bit of a disclaimer, this may not work like this for everybody. Um, mm. I, I'm happy to, to, to um, believe that I am quite mad. Um, Do you actually but, yeah. ask them questions? Um, not so much questions as I question I question the situation and then put them in – it's like putting them on a stage, putting them in different scenarios and what, would this happen and if would this person do that? No, they would not. Would this person do that? So there's a lot of that sort of moving them around in my head. So when you get to the end of a book and you've spent two years because, you know, you've, it's not just the writing of the story, then there is the edit, then there is the, you know, whatever. But I, when I was writing the first draft, and I, I remember tweeting about this, when I was writing the first draft of the third book, I was – writing really slowly, which is very unlike me, really, really slowly. And part of it was, it wasn't that I didn't know what was going to happen because by then I'd had a very, very clear picture of where everyone was going, what was going on. Mm. Um, but it was just the sense of not wanting to get there. I didn't want to get there because I knew once I got there, mm. I had to wave goodbye to them all. And it's really, it's, it is, it's like a, you do go through a period of mourning. It's a very sad sort of, there's a flatness to it. You should be cheering, but you're not because part of you is going, well, you know, I'm not quite ready to say goodbye to you all yet. How long did this period of mourning last for you? I reckon with that's because that was, you know, that series is a mass, was a massive part of my life there for a good couple of years and particularly writing the second two books because I was editing, I was always editing one or or proofreading one or whatever and writing the other. So that it was I was consumed by it for a good 12 months. Um, you know, I reckon a couple of months of just mm. not quite knowing what to do next and not, wow. you know, just that whole sense of I didn't write anything else at that stage. It took me, I reckon it took me four or five months before I sat down to start a new thing. Mm. I mean, I was doing other things, of course. I was writing Mm. bits and pieces but to actually sit down and start a new manuscript it took me a few months because I just wasn't quite ready to to let go and I was flat yeah you know my husband would agree I was really quite you know melancholy shall we say sure Hmm. well let us take 
you out of your melancholy, not that you're in it right now, uh, and move on (laughs) to our next link, which is from the BookBub site, and it's five steps to writing a killer elevator pitch for your book. Now, not only do you need to write a killer elevator pitch, I have to say, you need to be able to say it because I have to say, the, the reason I brought this up was I meet so many aspiring writers, as you can imagine, and you do too. And it is astounding when I say, oh, what's your book about? Like the book that they're writing or in the middle of writing or almost finished writing. And 10 minutes later, they're still talking and I still don't understand Mm -hmm. what their book is about. And you just don't have that luxury if you're trying to pitch your book to an agent or a publisher or just trying to get, or, or even to readers, quite frankly. So I think it's so important for authors, even if they're just starting their book, don't wait till the very end, even if you're just starting your book, to think about what your elevator pitch is. Mm. And of course, if people aren't familiar with, with what an elevator pitch is, it's simply your 30-second spiel. It's the, if you meet somebody in an elevator and they say, what do you do or what's your book in a, 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 what is your book about, you can um, give, it to him, give it to them in a very short, succinct spiel before they get off on their floor at the elevator. Mm-hmm. So it's so important it, and people think, oh, but I haven't finished my book. I, I, don't, I, I can't tell you what it is about yet. That's okay because the thing is your elevator pitch can change. Your elevator pitch today might be different to your elevator pitch in six months when you have written more in your book. It's fine. You don't have to stick with the exact same elevator pitch. Of, of course, your uh, book is going to change or your story might evolve. But it's so important to be able to express it succinctly, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think it's um, – and, and it, it's not easy. Let us let me just put that out there immediately. Mm. It's not an easy thing to do because often with a – often with a um, – with a, particularly with fiction, you, you know, your idea can be – can crystallise as you go and you might sort of have – you might start with a character and then it, it sort of all starts to, to develop as you write or something like that. But it is something that you – particularly by the end of the of the first draft you should have a very very clear idea of what it is that you are trying to achieve and you know what you would say to people if they say oh a new book what's it about yes exactly mm. and i'm reminded of um the sydney writers festival uh, sydney writers festival often have an event called uh, so you think you can write and um it is a room full of hundreds of people. Mm. And on stage, there's a bunch of different publishers, like actual proper commissioning editors and publishers of the major publishing houses. And people have the opportunity to stand up and give their 30-second pitch. Oh. I'm, I'm not sure if it's 30 seconds, could be 60 seconds, but it's oh. very short and sharp. And there's pressure. an MC. Yeah, pressure. And there's an MC facilitating it all so that people don't go on and on. And it is astounding the number of people who will stand up. And it's what an incredible opportunity opportunity to be in front of four publishers of major publishing houses and to just crap on not knowing really what your book is about and going on and on the audience is getting bored the publishers are getting bored but but I've also seen people stand up say their book in a sentence and I've seen a major publisher say I need to talk to you straight after this oh wow so it's it can work if you in the right environment and make sure that you have your elevator pitch sorted what was the elevator pitch for Power Stories, Val? Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. I well, am. it's really the tagline. It's the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. There you go. There nice. you go. Nice. <laughs> Let's move on, though, okay. to uh, something else, which is I thought this was a good one. 
10 sneaky overwriting traps to avoid. Yes, this is excellent because we were talking, and this is on the the Right Life uh, website, therightlife.com, and um, we had a conversation a couple of episodes ago. Um, I can't exactly remember when because, you know, talking to you regularly, I remember, <laughs> I rarely remember what episode. Um, but we were talking about underwriting and we were talking mm. about the fact that generally speaking, I tend to underwrite my first draft and then go back and add the detail in. But overwriting is um, is probably the main uh, problem that, yes. that authors have, particularly, you know, new authors have when they're writing their first manuscript. And it's um this is a great little list of 10 traps to avoid this is if you're looking through your first draft looking for th- for places to cut words or whatever look for these things this is where you may have overwritten so there one of them for example and you see this a lot particularly with um with uh, new authors, Mm. you go overboard describing your secondary characters. So unless this person is suddenly going to appear on page 478 as being the person who did it (laughs) and that there is a point to all this, who done it, we don't need to know every detail of every single character. Like your secondary characters, you know, you need to be able to, to describe them briefly quickly, focusing on the details that will actually relate to their interaction with your main character. Mm. Um, but, you know, we don't need to know what they, did, what they did in second grade and we don't need to know, you know, that they've got 26 freckles. You know, there are just certain things that we probably don't need to know about them. So yes. that's one thing to look for. Mm. Um, and I think that the other one that I particularly liked was actually point two in this um, in this list, you use too many adverbs and adjectives. Oh yes. Now, so this true. is a really interesting point because I there was a, a post during the rounds on the internet recently, which was a written by a primary school teacher in the US, who was saying how they had gone out of their way to tell children that they would get lower marks if they used the word said in their writing. Oh, yes, that's right. Do you remember saying that? I do. And I was so outraged. Yes. I was so outraged by that because I think that nothing nothing um, adds more to the feeling of something being overwritten mm. than, you know, argued, shouted, yelled, uh, exclaimed, et cetera, et cetera, said, your eye rolls over. You don't even notice it. But yeah. If you start putting an, a sort of, you know, descriptor into every single thing, people will start to get bogged down. So um, when I go to schools, I always say to them that they should use the best word they know to describe anything. And the best word they know is probably the simplest word they know Mm. to describe it. And I think that that kind of stuff, like thinking about how much detail does your reader actually need to know where they are, Mm. is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And the one that I see a lot of is um, point five is your dialogue drags. And more specifically, there's too much dialogue, way too much dialogue, particularly when you delve into, you know, um, I've peeked into areas of fan fiction and that sort of thing. And I am shocked actually at the amount of dialogue that is in some of these stories. And if half of it could be cut or if it could be interwoven with some action and some narrative, then it wouldn't just be just reading oh because half the time you don't know who's talking because mm. it's not exactly. well expressed enough yeah they're just like bouncing backwards and forwards mm. between each other i have to say there is one point in this that i don't agree with though and mm-hmm. that is point 10 where she mm. says 
uh, the author is Daniela McVicker. Um, you've written more than a few pages without reviewing and deleting. Um, I don't necessarily mm. agree with that. My my uh, my advice for new writers is always to get the draft happening and then go back and edit afterwards because otherwise people, I just know too many people who've had the same three chapters on their computer yep. for months and months and months and months because they keep polishing and editing and they know they, they haven't got past the first, you know, 10,000 words. You, you've got to get out into the middle. You know, you've got to start sort of forging your way through um, to get an idea of what your story is. I often find that I get to the end of the book and then go back and then rewrite the entire first chapter because I know what's happened. So mm. I think, you know, think about that sort of thing too. Like I just, I don't know that, that reviewing every five minutes is, is such a great idea. But anyway, the rest of the post I think is great. Yeah. Okay. So I want to move on because we're coming towards the end of 2015 and we've got a new year ahead. And, you know, new year is always a time that you start thinking, what do I want to get done this year? What do I want to achieve this year? It's just a natural thing that happens every Mm -hmm. year. Uh, Of course, you know, people make new year's resolutions and that sort of thing. But even if you're not into new year's resolutions, because I know a lot of people aren't, you do take, you have the time, I suppose, because often people have time off to take stock and to reflect about what didn't I get done this year that I wanted to? What do I want to make sure happens in 2016? So I think it's a wonderful time to start thinking about what your writing goals are, specific writing goals. Do you have any specific writing goals for 2016? That's supposed to be my question to you, Valerie. (laughs) You have wrong-footed me. Um, Yes, I do. I have several writing goals. Um, I Mm. always do, but only because I have ongoing projects all the time. So I, you know, I don't do New Year's resolutions ever um, because I wrote Mm -hmm. so many stories for Clio and Cosmo and Vogue saying how they just set you up for failure. (laughs) Every psychologist in the world says don't do it, so I don't do it. Right, writing goals for 2016. I have a screenplay to write. I have a new series to write. And I am hoping to – I'm actually hoping to do some more corporate work next year as well. I'm looking at branching out in my corporate work clients. So those are my three writing goals. Um, And you, Valerie? Well, I can give you an answer now, but I must admit it might change in six months. And, you know, I'm okay with that because Mm -hmm. things do evolve and change. But my current fascination – I mean, of course, I'm still going to do my usual writing and writing for magazines and all that kind of stuff. But Mm. my current fascination – now, as we know, there is this – whole world of content writing, content marketing, which I know you don't like the the term mm-hmm. content, uh, but it's I see it everywhere and I see it burgeoning. So I guess I'm interested in not doing more of it because I'm quite happy doing the kind of writing that I'm doing, but it I guess exploring it and seeing who the players are and how the industry is going because mm. I know that it's definitely exploding and I just want to see where the trends are going to be and how to break down content marketing into a way that um, journalists, freelance writers and uh, even creative writers can potentially get in on it if they want mm. to. Not everyone wants to, mm. but, but if they want to get in on it in a structured way that makes the money. So it's not that exciting. <laughs> I'm not writing a screenplay, but that's my current fascination. Well, and it's, as you say, it's, it's where the industry's headed. So it's a, it's a good fascination to have, Valerie. I'll yeah, give you that. I'd, yeah. I'd like to think so. Yeah. And we are getting some fantastic, uh, through the Writer Centre, we are getting some fantastic responses because you, of course, have put out the question, what is your writing goal for 2016? And what is your best 
quote or piece of advice for writers. So my, do you want to know what mine is? Go on. Best advice ever given to me ever when it came to writing. Ready? Go on. Finish the damn book. (laughs) Best thing ever. Because if you don't finish the book, you got nothing. What about you? I love it. I love it. I love Oh, I love inspirational writing quotes. and um, no, I know that you I, do. I can't pick one. It's just too hard for me to pick one. So I would just like, I would just like to point people to the Writer's Centre Instagram page, which is on yep. Instagram, Writer's Centre AU, because it's an awesome spot with lots of inspirational quotes and images which you can, you know, use or regram or, or, or do what you like with. Um, and there's a great little community there who mm. uh, – you know, liking the stuff and talking to each other. So, yeah, check us out on Instagram if you want some good writing advice and some good writing quotes. But we'll also put a link in the show notes to um, where you can tell us what your 2016 writing goal is because one of the things we're going to do is get com- compile everyone's writing goals and put them in a word cloud so that we can see what um, kind of like what the trend is in terms of what people want to achieve in 2016. Great. But let us move on to our 12 days of Christmas. Oh. Yes. We have a 12 days of Christmas giveaway, which means you can win 12 books. And uh, all you need to do is go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. And you have until Monday, the 4th of January, 2006. So you have a little bit of time to enter and – and you could be the lucky winner of this great box of books. So remember that's writercenter.com.au slash win. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there will be another prize for you to win at that time. Hmm. So let's move on to the world of blogging, Al. Oh, yes. I um, came across a terrific post uh, this week on the Word Mothers blog, wordmothers.com. Now, this is a fantastic little blog. Um, It's run by Nicole Melanson Mm. and she does – it's it's all focused on interviews with female authors, word artists and book industry professionals. Mm. So she has a lot – I mean, there's some fantastic interviews on there um, that uh, we're – you know – the authors and industry professionals answer a whole range of questions about about their writing, about their typical day, about how they fit the writing in, which of course is a massive um, a massive problem for a lot of people. But this particular post that she put up earlier this month is called Eight Tips for Pitching a Blogger. And mm. from the perspective of, you know, building your author platform, um, if you are looking at sort of trying to get yourself some publicity to bring your profile up to let people know what you're doing, um, she has given us some terrific advice on how to actually approach a blogger like her with this great, you know, uh, website full of all these fantastic interviews and get um, get yourself, you know, onto someone else's blog because that is a fantastic way to build your own profile is to put yourself in front of somebody else's audience. Like it's yeah. a really, really, um, really useful thing to do. So uh, in her eight tips for pitching a blogger, she talks about how she chooses the interviews for Word Mothers. And she uh, roughly one-third of the writers she features are recommended by previous interview subjects. A Mm. third are writers that she pursues because she's personally interested in their work. And a third are writers who pitch her. Um, And so she's got some tips here on what you need to know if you're going to pitch a blogger, one of which, of course, is know the blog. I get so many many pitches for my blog Mm. from people who want to meet me to feature um, products or themselves or whatever, even though I have on my blog a mm. policy that says I don't do that. Yeah. So if you 
you need to have a good look at the blog that you're actually approaching. Look at the style. Look at who they're featuring. Have a look to see whether or not you're actually going to – I mean, don't waste your time is what I'm saying. Yes. Look at whether you're going to fit into the actual blog itself. Um and then other things that she talks about are things that, you know, make sure you include your social media links and your um, and your website, et cetera, in any pitch that you send. Like she doesn't want to have to go searching the internet to see who oh, you are. Yes. And she may not know. This may come as a surprise, but yes. she may not know who you are. So make sure that you have your, all your links on there. Um, and she says one of the most important things you need is a, is a presence. You do need some kind of presence on social media, a home where she can find you. And also because... These kinds of things work two ways. Yes, she is going to put you on her blog, but she would also, there's a reciprocity to it. You will also want to share the interview with your audience. Mm. So that puts her blog in front of your audience. So have an audience. Um, But anyway, so if, if this is something, if you've got a book coming out next year and you're sort of thinking to yourself, how am I going to go about promoting it? Have a look at this post because there are a lot of blogs out there where you can you know, be interviewed or perhaps write a review or do different things. Have a look at the different blogs and see what you can do and read these tips before you do it. Absolutely. They're great tips. And I love one of them, which is subscribe, as in subscribe to the blog that you're pitching to. And she actually says, I'm always amazed when people rave about how great a blog is and why it's the perfect fit for their work, but sorry, no follow. Yes, I realize you can't become a member of every single club that hosts you or personally acknowledge every person that contributes so much as a comma to your manuscript. But if you genuinely believe that something deserves a wider audience, why wouldn't you put your hand up to be part of that audience too? Blogs are all about community. So stand up and be counted. So true. And I also think, you know, the thing that I see a lot, and this is something that I fully believe in, um, a simple thank you. Oh, if, yes. if somebody puts you on their blog or has you on their podcast or features you in some way or doesn't make you know retweets your thing to their audience, whatever it is, mm. thank them. It's it's amazing how a simple thing like that just makes such a big difference. Yeah, absolutely, brilliant. All right, so let's move on now to our writer in residence this week. Oh, let's and who have we got? I thought this was really interesting. We've got Mitchell Hogan, uh, otherwise known as Mitch Hogan, and his latest book is Blood of Innocence, which is the second Mm. in the series. Uh, The first one was Crucible of Souls. And I thought this was a fascinating journey for a a Sydney-based author because he was an accountant initially. Mm. Oh, yes, like someone else we know. Yes, like someone else we know. But he loved writing and loved fantasy books and used to write a lot on the side, decided I'm going to actually do it. I'm going to write my novel, you know. He put his money where his mouth was, quit his job, decided to to write. And initially, uh, he decided to self-publish and it went gangbusters. Oh. Uh, Yeah, really, really successful for his first and second book. But then Harper Voyager took notice. And the interesting part of this journey is that they've signed him on. The self-published versions are no longer available online, Mm -hmm. uh, only the Harper Voyager versions are, and he does say how they've, you know, polished it, made it a better book, made it a better story, uh, and um, and now they're they they're, they're out there under Harper Voyager and also doing very well. So Crucible of Souls won the Aurelius Award um, in two thousand and thirteen, and Blood of Innocence is actually going to be released in bookstores on the first of January. So that's perfect timing for listeners who are looking for their next read. So let's have a listen to Mitch Hogan. 
Thanks for joining us today, Mitch. Thanks for having me. We're very excited about your book that's coming out this January, 1st of January, Blood of Innocence. Now, for those readers who haven't read your book um, yet, well, they won't have had a chance to yet because it's just about to come out, tell us what they can expect. What's it about? It's epic fantasy. Uh, when I was growing up, I always liked the epic fantasy stories about the you know young um, sorcerer with talent who uh, you know fi- comes into their own. I-, I guess you could say in the world at large, and they develop their talents and you know are thrown into different situations that, that, that they have to cope with and to see a lot of growth of the character. So my epic fantasy series is is based along those lines, which. Some people might think is a, a bit, you know, tropey, but um, I really enjoy reading those books, and so that's the type of series I wanted to write. And so this is the second book in the series. That's correct. Because yeah. the first is Crucible of Souls, which won the 2013 Aralis Award for Best Fantasy Novel. Uh, tell us how that started. Like, what made you think, oh, I'm going to write this massive <laughs> fantasy series now? Yeah, I've always read a lot of uh, fantasy and science fiction. I read uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings when I was 11. Mm. And I had actually already written you know, about 100 pages of the book and had gotten some good feedback from the you know, Harper Voyager Australia uh, fantasy editor at the time, Stephanie Smith. And I've always wanted to finish it, but you know, real life got in the way and my mm. job had so much overtime. And I got to a stage where I, I needed a change. And so I thought... I'm going to finish this book I've always wanted to write. And so I actually quit my job and um, had a few months break and then decided to, to finish off the book. And uh, in the end, I decided to self-publish it, which I did in July 2013. Uh, and yeah, it just seemed to uh, take off. There was some you know, mysterious you know, um, coming together of the, the cover and the title and the blurb you know, and the <laughs> sample and um, it sold really well and then uh, won the Aurealis Award. Uh, and then I had um, you know, conversations with Harper Voyager who I ended up signing with and also was approached by Audible as well for audiobooks. Wonderful. Tell me, how did the idea come about though I know that you've been obsessed with fantasy novels for you know since you were little but this particular story was this a story that was brewing in your head for a long time or you know did it come to you in a flash of lightning how did it come about I had a lot of ideas for different scenes actually I didn't have an overall you know arching plot you know to cover it at first uh, I had a lot of different characters I thought were interesting and different scenes they were in, and so I, I wrote those first. And then I decided upon a, a main character and wrote more scenes from their point of view. And I'm essentially a discovery writer, so mm. all the books so far have pretty much been discovery written. Uh, so a lot of ideas have come to me while I've been writing, and the characters have sort of taken me in directions I didn't think of or didn't anticipate at the time. So. Really, yeah, the ideas sort of came to me as I was writing. So when you say that you had ideas for scenes mm. and and then later on decided on a main character, did you sort of build your world first in a sense? And, and can you describe to us what kind of world that is? 
Yeah, I, I had an idea. I guess my world is a fairly standard, you know, epic fantasy world, um, you know, with swords and, and magic and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but um, I spent a lot of time on my magic system, which I really like uh, different magic systems in, in epic fantasy novels. And so I wanted to come up with my own um, you know, I guess unique uh, magic system. So that was a big part of my world building because the you know the magic was a, going to be a big part of the story as well. Mm. So uh, I spent a lot of time on it and you know came up with a lot of ideas and obviously discarded a lot of ideas. Um, but I think it, it's really worked out uh, well. I get a lot of you know comments on on the magic system and um, and how that works. Uh, but overall, um, you know, I, I think. World building is it's it's quite difficult, and it and it's quite difficult to uh, get across your world, you know, without a lot of exposition and and that sort of thing. So mm. I, I liked to just put little details here and there all the way through my books, so that the reader will end up getting a, an overall idea of of what the world's like, and you know, um, you know what's possible in terms of you know the magic system and other things. Yes, yeah, so you say you're a discovery writer and you kind of discover what happens to your characters and your plot as it goes along. Is that really hard? Because then you have to tie in a whole heap of stuff in book two that you didn't think of in book one or whatever. Is that hard? Yeah, it is. It, it's, it makes for a messy first draft. Mm. And I think discovery writers uh, definitely revise a lot more than, mm. than planners. Uh, and but the thing is, I, I guess with once you have the first book out of the way, there are things that have to happen then in in the second book. And once you get the second book out of the way, you know there are definitely things that have to happen in in the third book or to finish off the story. So you know your discovery right, but also the, the further into a book or a series you get, uh, the the sort of more you know, I guess the direction you're going in as well. So you can come up with ideas and throw them in as well, but but you pretty much know, you know, by the time you start the third book, mm. where the story is going. Sure. And as you are discovering things about your your the characters' journeys and about the world itself, in order to let's get practical, in order to remember them, yeah. um, do you what techniques do you have? Do you stick them up with you know in pictures in, around your study, or how do you keep track? I just have some very basic character sheets uh, mm. and some some notes on different things about the world, and, and really that's it. Uh, I know, you know, you can do a lot of world building that um, really doesn't get shown in the book. Mm. Um, I've heard that uh, the world building that you see in the book, or the world that you see in a, an epic fantasy book, is really just the tip of the iceberg, and that there's so much more underneath that, that an author's thought of, and and that's fairly true. Uh, but I, for myself, I really just have some brief character sheets, uh, you know, what the character looks like, you know, their likes and dislikes and their, their family and you know, habits and, and a few other things. Uh, and then just, I guess, some major points about the world um, and the magic system, of course, which is important for epic, fa epic fantasy. Mm. But, um, yeah, really, that's it. I don't go overboard. Um mm. But so, it can be re very enjoyable. Enjoyable. I know a few epics fantasy authors who really enjoy world building, and they they spend a lot of time on it. So does that mean that what the readers know about the world is pretty much what you know about the world, and there isn't a lot beneath this? You know, a lot more that you haven't revealed yet. 
Well, there is. I mean, you're always thinking about it when you're writing, and and you obviously can't put everything everything in the book. And you have created, or I, you know, as with this series, I have created a quite a massive world, and there's definitely a lot that I haven't shown. Mm. Um, but I really just haven't written it all down. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said that when you were eleven, you were given The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and then you got really into these kinds of books. What was the appeal? What was it that made you love them so much? I think it was probably the scope of the story. Before reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, I read a lot of, you know, I guess, you know, younger fantasy, like just guessing the Hardy Boys and the Three Investigators. Um, mm. And epic fantasy just has such a larger scope to it. And the world is so much bigger and, you know, in a lot of epic fantasy books, the world's in danger and the characters are, you know, saving the world. Um, and I guess it really appealed to me as well as the, you know, the fantasy setting and, you know, the use of magic as well, which was really intriguing to me as a young boy. Mm. So that's really what got me into them. So it's one thing to love reading them, but at some point you obviously decided that you wanted to be a writer. When was that point and what happened I think I was at university and I and I wrote a page, you know, for the first time I sat down and actually wrote something and I, and I wrote a page of a fantasy story, but I knew it was really bad, it was <laughs> terrible. It was about these, you know, old wizards with beards dressed in black in this tower, you know, sort of cackling over how evil they were and I just sort of deleted it at the time and I didn't really go back to, to writing until quite a bit later, I mean, maybe you know, 10 years later. Wow. Um, yeah. What made I, you decide to do it then? I just had all these ideas in my head with, with these different characters and different scenes and I just wanted to, to get them down on paper before I forgot them. Mm. And that's when I thought, well, you know, I may as well start writing a book. And so, you know, I did. And um, it took a long time, you know, from when I started writing to when I actually you know, finished. It took over 10 years because of, mm. you know, you just don't have time when you're working a crazy, you know, overtime Yes. How it works. So, yeah. So, I understand that you committed to it, though, because you decided, okay, I've got this novel that I want to write now, or this story I want to write now. And you quit your job and, uh, you know, got the support of your fiance, which is very nice. Yeah. <laughs> and that ended up in Crucible of Souls. Is that, is that how it goes? Yeah, that's how it, how it happened. I finished the book and. I that's really all I wanted to do and then once I had it I thought well hang on you know now I have this this novel written you know shouldn't I try and publish it mm. so I did start querying agents and then publishers and, uh, and I did get some feedback from uh, Rochelle Fernandez at Harper Voyager and I ended up deciding to self-publish. Um, I had an agent interested at the time, actually, um, but I decided to, to self-publish anyway. Why? And um, it, really, it really came down to... I really just wanted to get it out there, honestly. I yeah. realised that if I sat down and tried to query more agents or publishers or whatever, that, you know, it's, it's very rare that a book actually gets accepted by an agent and then even if you are you may not may not even get a publishing contract mm. so i 
seen, you know, I've done a lot of research uh, into self-publishing and there are, you know, authors that aren't doing well at it, there are authors that are, you know, making a living and there are authors that are doing really, really well at it. Um, but ultimately, I just thought I wanted to get my book out there and I wanted the readers to decide um, whether it was any good or not. Mm. Um, and I guess that was my main um, motivation just to to see whether it was any good or not. So, how successful was it? What can you tell us about? You know, you don't necessarily yep. have to reveal <laughs> figures or anything, but how successful was it? It was it was surprisingly successful. I, I, it sold over four thousand um, copies in the first month, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, from both the books, sold over 40,000 copies from the self-published version. Yep. Before I had to take them down for um, Harper Voyages versions to come up. Yes. And the audiobooks have sold over 40,000 as well, audiobooks. Great. So if, now can't, like, reverse time, go back in time, mm -hmm. and you're at that point now, you've finished writing, you've sent it to some agents. If you had your time again, would you do things differently? I, I don't think I would because it's worked out so well, <laughs> really. It's worked out so well for me. So I wouldn't do thing, anything differently, to be honest. Um, the, my chances of getting an agent at, at the time, uh, you know, a few years ago, were, I guess, uh, were no better than anyone else's. Mm. So it's just worked out uh, well for me. I wouldn't change anything, no. And what job were you in that you quit and decided to throw yourself into writing? What kind of role was it? Yeah, it was in the finance industry. I was working in a, a US bank um, in the CBD of Sydney um, in fund accounting, which probably doesn't mean much to, to most people. Um, but um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good job you know, for a good company, um, but it was just time for a change. I'd been with them for, for almost 10 years mm. and yeah, I just wanted to write this book, so um, I took a chance. That's a totally different world. Yeah, it is. It is. It's crazily different. And what did your friends – I have? I can relate because I'm a former accountant and I used to audit those fund managers and deal with the fund accountants <laughs> a lot. Having said that, uh, I have a very different life now. What did your friends and colleagues and peers think about this, about your, your you know, the path you decided to take? Everyone was very supportive and everyone thought it was great. Uh, but then, you know, even myself at that stage, I really had no idea about the publishing industry and, and what it was like, you know. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think most of my friends probably thought that, you know, you, you write a book and that's a huge achievement and, you know, you should have no problems, you know, getting a publisher's contract or, or something like that, which is, you know, obviously not the reality. Mm. So, yeah, I've... It's been a, a steep learning curve the last few years because I was terribly naive about, about publishing and self-publishing and, mm. and what was going on in the industry. Um, so, yeah, and I think um, you know, some authors, even now, you know, they focus on writing rather than you know, the business of writing as well. Yes. And I think you have to be good at both. So, um, yeah, definitely. And you were obviously successful with your self-publishing efforts. What did you think you did right that made it work? Apart from obviously writing a great book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or great I, two books. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I 
tried to make my book uh, indistinguishable from a tradi traditionally published epic fantasy book. So mm. I paid for a professional cover. I had professional editing, um, kind of copy editing, proofreading, formatting, which I paid for myself. You know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a fair bit. Uh, so. I tried to, yeah, like I said, tried to make my product indistinguishable from, you know, traditionally published epic epic fantasy books, and I priced it at what I thought was a was a reasonable price for a professional product, uh, which was a lot higher than than most uh, self published self authors had out there. Especially if you want to make it indistinguishable, indistinguishable from right. the professional and, books. And yeah, I, yeah, and I think that price got some eyes on it that wouldn't otherwise have have looked at it. Mm. I think so, yeah. So now Harper Voyager comes calling. They've released the books, but as you've referred to it as the Harper Colin, I mean the Harper Voyager version of the books because obviously they've provided some feedback and you've done some edits. How yeah. different uh, is the Harper Voyager version to the original version? The story is the same and – it's obviously been polished a lot, a lot better than the version I had that, that came out. Uh, I guess Harper Voyager's um, task, I guess you could say, was not to change the book or change the story, but just to polish it and to, you know, look in the, the closets and clean out, you know, all the bits and pieces and um, really just make it a, a much better, you know, uh, book and uh, more readable and appeal to more readers um, than it did originally. Mm. So uh, the story is the same. Uh, it's been, you know, some of the point of view characters uh, I had in there we've removed so the, the story focuses more on the main character. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially that's, um, that's it. So um, it's definitely a far more polished version. Um, but yeah. So, if you were so you were so successful with the self-published version, why go with Harper Voyager? What was the appeal? The appeal for me is that uh, I wanted to try and turn my tens of thousands of readers into you know a hundred thousand readers or two hundred mm. readers, if possible. I felt that um, that was you know I guess a good goal for me to to aim for. I wanted to my goal after having published uh, and after the book took off, I had to, I guess, reassess my goals as an author. Like, what do I want? What am I, what am I doing with, with this? I can now turn this into a career. Mm. And my goal was to make a living um, out of my writing and that's what I want to keep doing. And, you know, a, a good way to do that is to, you know, get a traditional publishing contract under your belt and get their marketing and support um, and try and reach a, a lot more readers, you know, than you, you can on your own as a, as a self-published author. Um, so obviously, you know, if you self-publish, the, the print market is really something that's, hard to get into and really tough to crack and, and you can't even get a decently priced copy of your own book if you go through print on demand as well. <laughs> yeah. So that's a you know a big problem. So um you know getting getting a more polished version out there, reaching a lot more readers and you know hopefully that'll set me up for um future releases um you know going forward. So when you are writing, so particularly say when you're writing the second one because you know, you've got you know, some runs on the board, you know what you're doing. Um, when you're writing, what's your typical day like? Do you have a writing routine? Do you focus entirely on the book or do you 
do other projects? Yeah, I try and start. Obviously, you know, I've I've got a young daughter as well, and I've had to look after her on and off, and so mm. there's a bit of disruptions there. But I I try and get as much writing done as I can in the morning. Um, I'm not a fast writer, so you know, if I get a thousand words or fifteen hundred words done, you know, before lunch, I think that's fantastic for me. Mm. Uh, so I like to you know get my writing done in the morning if i need to do more writing on the in the afternoon i, I can um, but then i can focus on you know other other things about writing and um, you know or authors groups and forums you know and, and chatting with other authors and um, also editing as well i usually have two books you know on the go i'm writing a book while i'm revising or edi- editing another book so i can do that in the afternoon as well mm. um, yeah and so you obviously haven't lost the taste for self-publishing because you have recently uh, published, self-published Inquisitor, which is another one of your novels. Is that right? That's right. I wrote a, a science fiction sort of space opera novel called Inquisitor as a, as a fun side project while I was writing this fantasy trilogy. Because uh, I, I had a... <laughs> you I, had, didn't have enough to do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, I just thought I'd do that. Uh, so, you know, I didn't write much on it every week, but, you know, at the end of it, I think it was 75,000 words, something mm-hmm. like that. So it was a decent amount. Mm. And... Um, I thought I'd just get it out there and um, you know, see how it went. So I, I did the same thing I did with The Crucible of Souls and I got a professional cover, professional editing and, and formatting. And, and how has it gone? It's done okay. I was I was expecting um, it to do okay, um, but there's not there's a little bit of crossover between fantasy and science fiction readers, but <clears throat> not a huge amount. So um, it's it's okay. <clears throat> but at the moment, I'm really focusing on my fantasy trilogy with, with Harper Voyager and, and getting that right and getting it sure. out there. And after that, I can focus on sort of promoting any, any other books I have. Mm. There's <clears throat> a lot of discussion these days about building an author platform, and that is particularly important for self-publishers who don't necessarily have uh, access to publicists or that sort of thing. How important do you think it is to build your author platform? I think it's hugely important. Um, and it's right up there with, I guess, well, even a mailing list is probably part of your author platform. And mm. I, I think that's hugely important. Uh, you know, having a, a good platform, uh, readers that you know are waiting for your next books and you've got ways of interacting with them and letting them know when your next book is out um, can really give you a huge boost in, in the beginning once the book is released. And that leads to, a, you know, a great deal of visibility and a lot more sales uh, and, you know, reviews come in a lot quicker as well so mm. having a having a, a you know a professional author platform is is essential really yeah and what do you think are the key steps in building one it's it can be hard I, i'm probably not the best person to talk to about that because because you know my book took off and i haven't had to really do you know the hard slog that a lot of self-published authors have, have had to do. Mm. Um, I think I think the key is probably getting your mailing list set up as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, getting you know social media presence out there. But I I wouldn't really say that's 
I guess it probably depends on genre as well. I, I think a lot of you know romance authors have fantastic social media platforms, and that mm. that works really well for them. But I th- but I think with epic fantasy, the social media is really more you know for readers of a way of sort of interacting with the author rather than a way of of selling books as well. Mm. So it can be different for different genres. So it is a bit tricky. What's next for you? What are you working on now? What are you writing now? Apart from promoting this book what are you writing now i'm i'm in the middle of the structural edit of the third book in the series which is actually due uh to harper voyager tomorrow but <laughs> it won't be sent tomorrow uh it'll probably be sent this weekend uh but i'm also writing another uh, epic fantasy novel which i've written about seventy-five thousand words on wow um so yeah, that's my next my next um, project. And, it almost um, doesn't add up because you know how you said that you're um, you're a slow writer. It doesn't sound like you're a slow writer. It sounds like these stories are just coming. Well, I think the key is I I try and write consistently, um, and you know that way, you know, if if you just write say a thousand words a day on just weekdays. Then you're going to, you know, get say 250,000 words written a year, and that's a lot. So mm. I think it's uh, just just writing consistently can really be a big help. Um, mm. So it just adds up, like like any task that seems, you know, mountainous. You know, you do a little bit at a time, and before you know it, it it's all, you know, added up, and you're halfway there, and it's all downhill from there. What do you enjoy most about writing? What is it that you love the best? I think finishing. Finishing. <laughs> finishing. <books>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can be hard for me in in the middle of writing a novel, um, especially with discovery writing, because it can seem like such a big mess, and you know, yes. you with ideas, and you know you've got to go back and revise, you know, the first, you know, eighty thousand words of the book, and oh um, so it can be a nightmare. But um, I really like having written and having the story finished and and I actually enjoy working with editors as well because you know they focus on taking your story and and making it better and improving it and you also learn from them as well and I've worked with a, you know a lot of good editors already you know my um, Derek Pry who I worked with with my self published work um and now you know Rochelle Fernandez at Harper Voyager and um David Pomerico at Harper Voyager US and it's really great working with you know um, editors and really getting the best out of out of your work, and they can see things that you just can't see because you're too close to it. Do you take everything that they say on board typically? Yeah, um, there's been a few occasions where I've just said no. Um, for example, in *The Crucible of Souls*, one of the point of view characters they suggested um, to cut out. And I thought um, they're an essential um, point of view character, mm. so I said no. Um, but generally, um, the feedback's spot on, and it's good to have a back and forth as well. You know, you don't just say no, I'm mm. not going to do that. You say, well, you know, I don't think I should do that because of these reasons, and they'll come back with you know their reasons, and you'll, you know, you'll either persuade them or they'll persuade you, and you'll you know, get to the right right point eventually. So, Blood of Innocence is out the 1st of January. What do you want people to feel after they've read it? I want them to feel that the journey they've taken on the, the first book or the beginnings of, of the journey is really reaching a, a crucial point in, in the story. 
in the first book, I left a lot of things um, intentionally sort of mysterious, and a lot more, a lot more, you know, things come out in the in the second book, and I really want readers to realise um, that the third book is going to be even better, and uh, that um, you know the the direction I've pointed them in with all these um, different characters and different plot points is um, really going to be. Um, a great finale in the third book. Mm. Now, uh, of course, it's going to be, it's going to make, people are going to appreciate it a lot more if they start with the first book, but is it a standalone story? Can people read the second book? No, it's not standalone at all. It's uh, <laughs> an epic fantasy trilogy. So, yeah, you'd, you'd have to read A Crucible of Souls first um, because otherwise you'd be, be quite lost. If you, you have to go back. Okay, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's an award-winning book, so I have no doubt people are going to love both of them. Finally, what's your advice for aspiring writers who hope to – you know, who maybe they're fund accountants at, at at a bank or something, and they would love like to be in a position position like you one day, being a full time writer. I think know what your goals are. You know why you want to write, what you want to get out of it at, at the end. You know, do you just want your print book on the shelf of a bookstore, or do you want to make a living, or do you want to win awards? You know, you really need to know what you want to get out of it, what what your goals are, and I think also as well is. Uh, as I said earlier, there's writing and then there's the business of writing. Mm. Uh, you really need to understand both and I think if you if you don't, um, then you're doing yourself a disservice because as an author, you're essentially a, a small business and you know, you're trying to make money, I guess, trying to make a living out of your writing or at least that's my goal. It might not be your goal as an author but um, yeah, you really need to understand the business of writing as well. That's great advice. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Mitch. Thanks for having me. There you go. It takes a lot of bravery, doesn't it, to quit your job and just to sort of follow your passion? But I'm. Oh, definitely. Good on Mitch for doing it. It's obviously paid off for him. Yeah. Go, Mitch. Go, Mitch. So uh, let's move on to our app pick for the week. So I haven't tried this particular app yet, but you might like to, Al, because you are writing a screenplay next year. Yes, I am. Correct? Correct. So Amazon has debuted Story Writer, a free screenwriting tool for writing films and TV scripts. So presumably this is going to be a cloud-based application. Mm. Um, But, well, it actually says you can utilise it on Amazon's website or you can download a browser plugin so you can use it with Google Chrome or P- on PC and Mac. And so this screenwriting tool creates, you know, standard format screenplays but because, of course, they are written in very different ways as plays or as novels. There's very, there's very specific ways that you need to format a, a screenplay. And so most people use a software program called Final Draft Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which, as the name suggests, is right, formats screenplays. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether – and, of course, Final Draft costs money. Um, mm-hmm. um, so it'll be interesting to see whether Story Writer 
uh, is going to be any good or not. So Mm. I reckon this is one that you might like to have a look at in the ensuing months. All right, Valerie, just for you. (laughs) We'll put the link in the show notes. I will go to to cutting edge technology just (laughs) for you, Val. (laughs) Nothing else would get me out there, you know that. (laughs) So... What? How? How were you planning on writing your screenplays? Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't have thought about that yet. At the moment, I'm just reading a whole lot of stuff about you know writing screenplays, and I'm watching lots of movies, oh, which yes. I have to say is a not a bad way to research. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm doing that, and it's sort of yeah, and then I'll go from there. I haven't thought well, too course, much about it. Scrivener, which you're you, you haven't learned to embrace yet, <laughs> also does some. Um, I'm such a luddite. <laughs> such a letter. Now we have a question from Hannah. Okay. So the question is, uh, so this is our working writers tips. And if you do have uh, a question that you'd like us to answer on the podcast, please do email it to us. We'd love to help you. Podcast at writerscentre.com.au. Now Hannah has asked, I now have some picture book manuscripts that I have polished to a high gloss. However, there are exactly four agents in New Zealand that work with children's book authors. The market is very narrow and also saturated. The message I'm getting is that they are not looking to take on any new authors and are solely focusing on the established authors they already have on their books. Where do I go from here? Do I throw my unsolicited manuscript at the gutted slush piles of the publishing houses or would it be worth approaching an agent in another country? What would you suggest? Take it away. Ow. Oh, great, Val. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, I think, to be perfectly honest, that I would be approaching – she says she's in New Zealand. I think mm. I'd be approaching Australian agents mm. with my picture books. Um, yes. I think I'd be looking specifically for Australian agents who uh, specialise in picture books. Um, I would be looking at their websites to see if they are accepting submissions at this time, mm-hmm. um, which they may not, may well not be. This is also a very – I would also be waiting till next March just quietly because everybody shuts down everything yeah. uh, about mid-December mm. in publishing and it won't rev up again until – you know, February, and then they're going to have six weeks worth of back, you know, log. So March is a good time to do it. Um, And, yeah, I would, I mean, you know, like you've got nothing to lose by approaching agents in another country and it it can be particularly with picture books because it is such a popular area. They are so, so busy with them, publishing houses, and they publish so few even, you know, in a bigger market like Australia, they will publish, you know, not very many of the many that they receive. Um, so I would probably that would be probably what I would be doing. Would you would you agree or I would agree one hundred percent with the added stipulation of don't bother doing anything any of the above if you don't have any online presence now if you are already an established author then that's fine do all of the above but if you've never published anything before and you approach an agent whether they're in New Zealand or Australia or wherever and they and they google you and they find no evidence of your existence don't don't even bother yeah. Because these days, if you're unpublished, that is, if you've never been published before, totally different if you're J.K. Rowling, remember? Mm-hmm. Totally different. Or Elizabeth Gilbert. But if you've never been published before, you need to start thinking about making sure you have a presence online, making sure you start building your author platform because when that agent or publisher uh, gets your manuscript and gets someone else's manuscript and they're both good and 
you know, you've have got no un- you've got no online presence, but the other person has. It's a no brainer who they're mm. going to go with. It's very true. So definitely, everything Alison said with that one addition. And we had some like Zanny Louise is someone who has, and Susan Whelan are both debut picture book authors that I know that have. Um, uh, published in the last year, mm. but I can honestly say that both of them. I was aware of both of them well before their books came out because yeah. they were um, they were in you know the ver- they were they were part of my blog community. They were in various uh, uh, you know on Twitter on Facebook. I I knew their names, and then I heard they had a book coming out. Yes, that's so. Right. Just, you know, think about that because that's – and I was like, yay. And suddenly – and, you know, mm. I was using my platform then to, you know, retweet their stuff about their about their books coming out and, and various other things. So I think, you know, think about that. It's it's really – real. the connections. Yes. It's not just the platform. It's those connections that you make are so, so important. Connect with people in the industry and the easiest mm. way to do that, of course, if you can connect with them in real life, fantastic, do it. You know, go to networking events. But if you can't, particularly if you live across some water, then connect with them. The easiest way to do it then, the most efficient way is to connect with them through social media. Um, we've got a, a post on the Australian Writers' Centre blog, which, you know, just Google 88 Australian authors to follow on Twitter. What yep. an easy and, and good way to start making connections, um, you know, by, by doing it via Twitter. Uh, yeah. But definitely it's um, – and, and have a look at Zanny's – I'm just looking at her website right now, zannylouise.com. Yeah. It is the sweetest little website that she's got. And she had a blog called My Little Sunshine House, which has been around for quite a while. And I think that – I'm pretty sure that's how we connected was via her blog and, in the, you know, in our various networks, mm. um, which – so the blog remains and she connects to it off her author website um, and she's got, you know – she's done a brilliant job of putting of bringing those things together. So it's well worth having a look at how other people do it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll put those links in the show notes. We will. But that brings us towards the end of our episode this week. What are you going to be doing until we speak again, Al? Oh, I'm going to be working very, very hard. And I'm also, I'm just going through that whole nightmare of, you know, Christmas. Not only do I have school holiday deadline looming, <laughs> but I've got Christmas. And I, I'm ordering hams. And oh, really? Are you going to make a ham, as in cook it? Yeah, I glaze a ham every year, Valerie. Really? That's I'm doing, I'm so doing the whole, <laughs> I'm doing the whole Christmas lunch, <laughs> which I have done for many years. Oh my! Do you not, don't you do that stuff? Not myself. Oh, <laughs> who does it for you? I'm, I'm moving to your house if someone else does it for you. What a that's a much better option. <laughs> Yes, wow. I'm doing hams and all sorts of stuff going on. You oh, know, good on Christmas you. puddings, trifles. That you make yourself. Well, Mum's bringing the trifle, right? And uh, various uh, bits. Dad's roasting the beef wow. and making the Yorkshire puddings that go with it because he does oh, a nice. very, very good Yorkshire pudding. Mm. And then I'm on everything else. Wow, you make the ham. That's so grown up. A glazing a ham is like the easiest <laughs> thing in the entire universe. You I've never done that. it in my life. Well, I set you a challenge, Valerie. <laughs> Glaze a ham. If I have to go out there and, and try out new technology, you, my friend, can glaze a ham. Uh, maybe yeah. I'll just make some ice cream. No. <laughs> I'll buy some magnums. Buy some magnums. <laughs> You're such a domestic goddess, aren't yes. you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so where do we find you online now? Oh, you won't find me on lamb, online. I'm glazing hams, remember? <laughs> um, you will find me at alizontate.com. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, 
uh, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And I look forward to connecting with everyone at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram. But remember, if you like, you know, great writing advice, go to the Instagram of the Writer Centre, Writer Centre AU on Instagram. And if you're looking for the show notes, go to soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. That brings us to the end of our episode. So until episode eighty nine. Yeah, episode eighty nine. How did we get here? I don't know, but until we meet again or chat again, we'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>